idea of how greatly blessed by God you really are. All right. We are blessed, aren't we? God is so, so good to us. And one of the greatest blessings that we have is to live in this great country of ours. I thank God that I was born and raised and lived in the United States of America. There's no place on this earth I'd rather live than the United States of America. And one of the things that has made our country great is the fact that many of the early settlers, such as the Puritans, the Quakers, others, came to America in search of religious liberty, the opportunity to practice their faith without fear of punishment, imprisonment, persecution, and death. Aren't you glad you didn't have to slip past policemen or army guards to get to church this morning? Aren't you glad we don't have to worry about uh, authorities breaking in the doors here and imprisoning those of us that are gathered here in the name of Jesus Christ? I thank God for the religious liberty that these people came seeking. And religious liberty flows out of a biblical doctrine commonly referred to as individual soul liberty or freedom of conscience. In our consideration of what makes for a healthy church, it's very important that we emphasize that a healthy church recognizes, stands for, and practices the truth of individual soul liberty. One of the things that makes for our great country and our religious freedom also makes for a healthy, loving, uh, trusting church family. It makes for a healthy church. That's true of a really an individual local church and also of the church as a whole, Christendom as a whole, in any particular time and region, and region, many of the darkest stains on the reputation of the professing body of Christ throughout church history, as well as many of the complaints of communities against area local churches, have come from a failure to embrace and to practice individual soul liberty. And this morning, we need to consider five truths about individual soul liberty. The first of these is the fact that we want to define individual soul liberty. What's an accurate definition of it? Well, we find that, first of all, that uh, soul liberty involves the liberty of every individual, believer or unbeliever, to choose what his conscience or soul decides is right in spiritual matters. We might even say that uh, individual soul liberty gives people in this life the right to be wrong. You know, there are people that, that are wrong. They say there is no God. Uh, they have all kind of warped ideas about God. And, but it's not up to the church or the state, really, to punish people. Neither acceptance of salvation through Jesus nor any other doctrine, is to be forced on other people. God makes it a matter of an individual choice. And every individual is accountable to God for his choices. Uh, we're accountable to God 
And that doesn't mean anybody is free to do whatever he wants to. God gives clear directions in Scripture. Uh, Adultery is never right. Murder is never right. Those things are condemned very solidly in Scripture. But fact, and there there are laws against those such behaviors, and rightfully so. But we find that ultimately our accountability is to God. We're accountable to Him, and especially in matters of spirituality and religion. And the fact of the matter is, worship of God is not coerced, or is not to be coerced or demanded under threat of persecution or punishment or death. Aren't you glad you didn't? Have somebody at gunpoint come get you out of bed this morning and say you're going to church. Now, maybe somebody did. I don't know. But, uh, some parents can get drastic sometimes, I guess. But I, I would venture to say you chose to come here this morning. And, and God's pleased with the fact that we made the choice to come here and, and worship him corporately with other believers today. We find these are the things that, that individual soul liberty is about. You don't force worship of God down somebody's throat. You don't throw somebody in prison because they they don't see the interpretation of the Bible exactly the same way that you see the interpretation of the Bible. Uh, There's freedom for us to make our own own interpretations. Now, we, we may be free to make our choices, but we're not free to decide what the consequences of those choices are going to be, either in natural consequences or... When we stand before God, as one day we all will. And this is what the really what individual soul liberty is, is based upon. It's based upon biblical teaching of the fact that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what it declares in in First Corinthians chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, verse chapter 5, verse 10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Romans chapter 14 uh, teaches the same truth. If you have your Bibles, turn over there with me. Very important passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 14, we'll, we'll just start reading at verse 5 here. Where it says, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Number one, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Some people think that uh, Sunday is the Sabbath. It's not. Sunday's the first day of the week. Uh, at this time, people were also keeping some of the Jewish feast days, and they thought that the church ought to do that. Other believers didn't think they needed to. Principle number one. When it comes to whether you're going to esteem one day higher than another day, be fully convinced in your own mind. It does go on down further and say anything we do that's not of faith is, is sin. Be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks. And he who does not eat uh, to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. There's the, the difference they had over whether they should eat meat that had been dedicated before idols in idol temples. Some believers felt they could do that with a clear conscience. Others said, no, I came out of that. I can't have anything to do with that. And, and number one, he's saying the important thing is what we do, is we do it to the Lord. He's the one we're accountable to. He's the one we should be striving to please. We shouldn't even be here worshiping this morning 
to please somebody else. We ought to be here worshiping God today in spirit and in truth to please God, to please Jesus Christ, our Savior. It goes on in the passage. It says, for none of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, that we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Christ is to be our Lord. He says, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Here's the basic thing for living, folks. We're going to give an account to God someday. Here's the basic thing for the choices you make spiritually. And whether you trust Christ as your Savior or not, one of these days, you're accountable to God. You will stand before Him. It's not for us as the church or us as individual Christians to try to force this on someone, to try to punish them in this lifetime if they don't worship God the way that we do, if they don't follow the Scriptures the way that that we do. But God one day... We'll deal with, with all of this. By the way, the, the judgment seat of Christ, we don't have a lot of time to spend on this. The judgment seat of Christ is where believers only will stand. And, and the issue is not whether you're going to go to heaven or whether you're going to go to hell. The issue with the judgment seat of Christ is faithfulness and your reward and what you're going to do for Christ forever in eternity. So, well, what about unbelievers? Well, the fact they're not going to be at the judgment seat of Christ doesn't mean they're going to escape standing before God and giving an account of themselves. There also were taught in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. And there the, the dead will give up the, those who have died, and they'll stand before God. And this is going to be a judgment for unbelievers. And they'll be judged out of the books or the records of their life. And the key thing is it says anyone who's not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. The great white throne is not about whether people go to heaven or go to hell. That's not, going to be, that's not going to be determined at God's judgment seat. You know when that's determined? Right here, right now, with what you do with Jesus Christ. If you're trusting Christ as your Savior, you don't have to wait to stand before the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment to find out where you're going to spend eternity. You can know that right here and right now if you've got your faith in Jesus Christ. On the other hand, If you think you're good enough on your own, if you've never embraced Christ to be your Savior and your Lord, I'm sorry, but you're headed for an eternal hell. And unless sometime, at some point in your life, you do embrace Christ as your Savior, hell is your sure certainty, and it's not going to be determined in the judgment seat. The only thing to be determined at the great white throne judgment is the degrees of punishment in hell. The Bible teaches there are degrees of reward in heaven. There are degrees of punishment in hell. Hell's going to be worse for some people. It's going to be bad for everybody that's there. It will be worse for some than for others. And one of the basic things that's going to be the criterion is what kind of light did people have? How much truth were they exposed to? And those were the most truth and the most light. Christ warned some of the cities that he ministered in there in Israel. It was going to be better for Tyre and Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the day of judgment that was going to be for those cities. So we find that everyone 
Everybody in this room today, whether you're a Christian or not, one of these days you're going to stand before God and give an account. If you're a believer, it's going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. If you're an unbeliever, it's going to be at the great white throne. But right now, we have the choice to make. We, we make the choice as part of the world, we're going to live this life for God or, or live this life for ourselves. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus described two ways of living, uh, two foundations you can make for your life. In the one foundation, you can build on the rock. And the rock is who? Jesus Christ. That's right. You can build your life on the rock. Or you can build your life on the sand. And the sand is what? Anything but Jesus Christ. What's the song say? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You know what? Christ laid these two ways of living out for people. Uh, Trusting him, following him, building on the rock, not building on the rock, building your life on anything else. You can choose whether you're going to build your life on Christ Or build your life on something else. You can choose if you're going to trust for your eternal destiny in Jesus Christ. Or if you're going to trust in anything else. You can choose. But Christ also goes on and he describes the consequences. It does say that when you build on the rock, there are storms that are going to come. But what happens when the storm comes to one who's building his life on the rock? That life stands. That house stands. For someone that's building on the sand, anything other than Christ, the storm comes. The storm of standing before God in judgment comes to everyone. And anybody building on the sand, what happens when the storm comes? That house, that life falls. And Christ says the fall is great. But now you can make the choice. You won't be punished in this life for not trusting Christ. You won't be punished in this life for for not Believing the Bible is the word of God, except for the natural consequences that come along with that. Uh, but, but it's not up to the church to punish people for going in those directions. First John chapter 2 says we don't need somebody to teach us all the truth. We can understand the scriptures and we're accountable to study the scriptures and to live our lives and build our lives accordingly. So there, there's the biblical basis. And we find that as we describe this matter of individual soul liberty, we want to do so consistently, first of all, in regard to salvation. There are things that uh, I, we should do to bring people to Christ that, that are, are, are proper and good, and we, we, should, we should, could disagree with people. If somebody says, well, I don't believe Jesus is, is the Son of God. I don't believe that he died on the cross and rose again. You know what? If you tell me that, I'm going to disagree with you. And I'm probably going to tell that to your face. Yes, he is the Son of God. Yes, he did die on that cross for our sins. Yes, he did die uh, so that we could be redeemed. Yes, he did rise again the third day. And here it is. I'll show you from Scripture. This is where it's at. You know, it, sometimes we, we misunderstand tolerance in this day and age. That's become a very warped word. Tolerance does not mean that we can't disagree with each other. Tolerance doesn't mean that I can't tell you, hey, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. And here biblically is why I believe that you are wrong. And trying to bring somebody to Christ, it's all right to disagree with them, to denounce them. Hey, man, you're going the wrong direction. You're going to destroy your life. You're going to destroy your family. 
You're going to destroy, destroy your eternity. We can try to persuade people, exhort people, sometimes even argue with people in Christ-like fashion, reason with people, witness to people, tell them what Christ has done in your life, teach people, model Christ in front of people, warn people of the judgment of God and the realities of hell. It's okay to do those things. And we we ought to do those things. We ought to have a a burden for souls and and a concern that that people are are lost and on their way to hell. And and no way should we take individual soul liberty as something that would make us apathetic towards evangelism and telling other people about Jesus. That's not what we're talking about this morning. But there are things we should not do when it comes to our concern for the souls of people and trying to bring them to Christ We should not persecute them. We should not coerce them. We shouldn't compel them. We shouldn't punish them. We shouldn't threaten them. Hey, if you don't trust Christ, we're going to kill you. That's not what it's about. That's not the approach that we are to take. The the other thing that comes into play is, you know, sometimes we as believers disagree on things. And uh, we're to exercise even a certain degree of individual soul liberty when it comes to our differences with other believers. Uh, what we can, to pr- pr- promote orthodoxy and truth, we can teach, disagree, persuade, reason, exhort. Uh, there may be instances where a church discipline might be necessary within a local church, but even in church discipline, we don't beat people up. We don't give people 40 lashes because they're teaching some doctrine that's contrary to what we believe as a local church here. Uh, those, those just aren't things that we, we do. Those aren't things that are, are proper. We don't persecute, coerce, compel, punish, or threaten. And we see the example in what we read in, First Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5 and uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 and Romans chapter 14, where these believers differed over uh, whether they should eat meat dedicated to idols, whether they should make one day especially holy above others. And uh, you know, it's not something you beat people up over. Also, here's, here's an area where there's a lot of difference within professing Christendom, and that is the matter of believer's baptism. I believe the Bible teaches very clearly that we are to become disciples of Jesus Christ. We're to get saved, and then we're to be baptized. And then we're to walk in obedience to the Lord. In the Great Commission, what did Jesus tell the disciples? He said, what? And make disciples. And then what? Then baptize them after they've become believers. And then can teach them to continue to observe all the things that Christ has commanded us. We, we find that order in all the commands that Jesus gave to the apostles. Make disciples, baptize them, continue to teach them to observe things that I've You go over to the book of Acts. And you find out what happens in the book of Acts. People become believers, and then what happens? Then they're, to be, then they're baptized, then they continue to, to walk in the apostles' doctrine and, and in fellowship. That, that's the order that you have biblically. That's something that we stand for as, as the, our church today, as a Baptist church today. We believe in believers' baptism. We, we dedicate infants, but man, that is not believer's baptism. Basically, that's a dedication of parents to raise their kids for the Lord. But if you look in much of professing Christendom, 
they practice infant baptism. They, the parents bring their children in, and a pastor or a priest puts some water on the, the child's head, and supposedly the child becomes a child of God, comes into the church, comes into the kingdom, whatever. Uh, we disagree on that. We butt heads on that. Uh, there, there are other churches in, in town here with pa pastors that I know and respect. I disagree with them on that. You know what? We don't get into a fist fight over it. And I don't think they should be thrown into jail because they, they baptize infants. One of these days, they'll give an account to God. But it's not for me to get them thrown in jail. It's not for me to physically punish them. I might also point out, it's not up to them and their churches to punish us for practicing believer's baptism. We're going to talk a moment about what happened, what's happened in, in history when this matter of, of individual soul liberty is rejected and denied and not practiced, and it is not, it's not pretty. When we disagree with other believers, uh, other things come into play. What you do on the Lord's Day, what you do on a Sunday, people disagree on that in here. It's not up to us to punish each other. People listen to different styles of music or Christian music. People believe in different ways of raising children. Some people are sold on homeschooling. Some are, are sold on putting their kids in a Christian school. Others are sold on, hey, we'll put our kids in a public school and, and we'll also have them involved in youth group and in a church as much as we can and, and teach them that way. It's not up to you and me to... We, we can differ over something like that, all right? We, we don't beat each other up. There's not necessarily one particular right way. But recognize what is the truth. We're all accountable to God for how we raise our kids, and we all must raise them in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord, right? That, that's the main thing. You see, where individual soul liberty comes into play in regards to, to salvation, and it's also a, a principle that, that's a healthy principle to be practiced here in, in a local church, where we can disagree over certain things that aren't fundamentals of the faith, but many times over interpretations of Scripture. What happened when, when this principle, this biblical truth of individual soul liberty is defied and denied and, and ignored? We see it going on in Islam. The practice in Islam is basically it was spread by the sword down through history. Islam was spread by the sword. People would go around, literally, do you want to die or do you want to be a, become a follower of Muhammad? Which do you want? Hey, that, that's history, folks. Study history, you'll find that's exactly what happened. We find also, you look around our world today, what do we see happening? How would you like to be in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, under the, in an area under the control of the Taliban? As a Christian, you would be in mortal danger. People would say, okay, you're a Christian. Infidels need to die. And if they don't die, at least they're treated as second-class citizens. You may have to pay a special tax in order to live in a, in a Muslim country because you're an infidel. You are not a Muslim. Uh, Islam is spread by, by threats and persecution and mistreatment of people, and imprisonment of people. And what I'm throwing out here is not bigotry. It's fact, folks. It's historical fact. It is reality. And why does that happen? Because 
Muhammad and his followers fail to recognize that every individual has the right to determine the choices they're going to make in the area of spirituality and their worship of God and Christianity under Christ does recognize that. People have the right to make a choice. And somebody chooses not to embrace Christ, somebody chooses not to believe the Bible and follow the scriptures, hey, who are they going to be accountable to? One, they're going to be accountable to God. We're not to be accountable to, to men here on this earth. Sadly, it's not just Islam that has practiced this. This is also responsible, the rejection of this principle has been responsible for some of the darkest blights in the history of the Christian church, professing Christian church. If you go back and you study about pre-Reformation Europe, the Roman Catholic Church dominated the scene. And you hear about things like the, uh, the Inquisition, where people, if they were considered a heretic, which basically meant they didn't, uh, they didn't follow the Pope, they didn't believe uh, the Virgin Mary was a mediator between us and God, uh, if you didn't follow Roman Catholic doctrine, you literally could be stretched on the rack, you could be burned at the stake. If you translated the Scriptures in a language other than Latin, you did so at risk of your own life. And once again, I'm not bashing the Roman Catholic Church. This is history, folks. That's what happened in, in pre-Reformation Europe. The Roman Catholic Church had a stranglehold on things. There was a, a link, a union between the church and the state where they worked together. The state endorsed, promoted uh, the Roman Catholic Church, and anything that wasn't Roman Catholic was persecuted. There were bastions of the truth and areas where people held the truth during those times, but, but pre-Reformation Europe was the Dark Ages in Europe. And this link between church and state was responsible for it. Now, when, when Martin Luther came along and John Calvin came along and those guys praised God for what they did and leading the Reformation and having the battle cry that, that it's salvation by grace through faith alone, that, that had been lost. And primarily through Europe and the, the pre-Reformation days, people taught salvation by works. That's what it's all about. And Luther, studying the book of Romans, saw that, no, it's not salvation by works. It's, it's by faith alone. And that was great. And Luther preached that, and he translated the Scriptures into the German language so the common men could understand it. Calvin taught the same thing. Only the sad thing is, you know what happened? In Germany, Roman Catholicism was rejected as the state church. But you know what happened? The Lutheran church became a state church. And you know what happened? There was persecution and punishment of those that didn't follow the Lutheran teaching. A Catholic in, in Lutheran Germany was in danger. So was anybody that believed in believer's baptism. If you believed in believer's baptism, baptism by immersion, you were in danger literally of death. In Germany, when the Lutheran Church was the state church, we find out that John Calvin did, was, was a tremendous force in the Reformation. But he tried to have, a, he had a link between the church and state in the city of Geneva where he literally tried to bring in heaven on earth. And if you didn't believe in things just exactly the way that John Calvin did, there were even people that died 
because they were considered heretics. Uh, we, we find that in, in England, the Anglican, the uh, Episcopalian Church, the Church of England became the state church, and the people that left England and came to the colonies, came to the new land, they came for religious freedom because they were being persecuted and imprisoned because their beliefs weren't right in line with the Church of England. And that was a great thing. We are so thankful they did that. However, you know what happened? In the Massachusetts Bay Colony, they set things up so if you didn't go along with exactly the way that the Puritans said things, then you were in trouble with them and even punished and beaten, put in the stocks, pilloried, banished. That happened to a fellow by the name of Roger Williams. And he was, he was banished from, from Massachusetts Bay Colony. He went, and the Indians basically saved his life as he was going to die of, of exposure during the wintertime. But, but he, he, found, he founded a place called Providence, Rhode Island. He founded the first Baptist church in America. And one of the principles that he founded upon was individual soul liberty, separation of church and state. Now, I realize that that phrase has been pushed to extremes, ridiculous extremes today. But you know what? It's a good, it's a good truth. It's a biblical truth. We're accountable to God. And, and it's not the job of the state to force people to worship God in any particular way. A by the name of John Clark got a charter for Rhode Island, and it was established as a haven of religious liberty, 1663. We find that, sadly, many of the other colonies had their own state churches. North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia had the Church of England. Uh, Connecticut had the Congregational Church. Maryland had the Roman Catholic Church, and later the Church of England. Now, this is also a danger in, in local churches as well where people judge and mistreat those with whom they disagree on many issues, and legalism kind of goes hand in hand with this. A real danger in local churches. But thank God we have some areas where the implementation of this principle of individual soul liberty has been put into practice. This concept of religious freedom flows out of soul liberty. And uh, one of the things that helps us can help us in this area is to know what our goal is as the church our goal as the church is not to christianize the whole world to make everybody live like christians our goal is not to even christianize all of america and force everybody in america to live like christians the goal of the church we read in acts chapter 15 and verse 14 is, is involves the fact that, that God is taking out of the world a people for his name. In Acts 15, verse 14, it says, Simon, Simon Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. You know what our job is? It's to share the gospel of Christ with people and to see individuals come to embrace Christ as Savior. That's our job, to, to evangelize, to share the good news. That, that was the, been the job, the, the, the mission all right along, to take this message and share. Now, what happens in a community when you get a lot of people that respond to that message? What happens in a family when you get members of that family that respond to that message and they trust Christ? It has an impact, right? 
And Christians are to be salt, and they are to be light in the world, and we're to have an impact in our community and in our family, but our job as the church is not to bring in the kingdom. We can't establish the kingdom of Christ here on this earth. Who's going to do that? Jesus is going to do that when? When he comes back, he will set up his kingdom. We can't accomplish that. In the meantime, what do we do? We rescue rats off a sinking ship. This world is a sinking ship. Sad to say it, but as much as I love America, America's headed in the wrong direction. And it's a sinking ship. And what's our job? We can't Christianize America. America was never totally Christianized. No matter how much we'd like to look back over some of the good old days, our job is to share the gospel and see individuals come to know Christ as Savior. We find that uh, we can be very thankful that this principle of individual soul liberty was demonstrated in the religious freedom guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States. We indicated that uh, some of the, many of the colonies had their own state church. But we can be thankful for men like Isaac Baxas and John Leland and James Madison, who when it came down to writing the Constitution and adopting the Constitution of our country, that they, they refused to adopt it until, first of all, was added the Bill of Rights. And the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights had to do with freedom of religion. And one of the things that kept from, from happening was kept America from having a state church. And we can be thankful today that in our country we don't have a state church. Not even the Baptist church is the state church. Now, I'm thankful the Baptists aren't the state church. That's not God's plan. Thank God for the religious liberty that we have. Uh, we find that Madison held out, for, and these other men held out, so they, they got the First Amendment. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, any particular church, or, or also, and here's prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Can I tell you that, that amendment? is in danger today. And the first part of that First Amendment is being misused today. Freedom of religion was never meant to be freedom from God. Now, it's still true. Righteousness exalts a nation, and sin is a reproach to any people. It's still true. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We need to recognize the God of the Bible, the God of creation, it's all right to recognize Him publicly. It's okay to have in God we trust on our coin and on our money. It's all right to have uh, the Ten Commandments posted in our, our halls of justice and in places like that. Separation of church and state was never the idea, of, and individual soul liberty is not the idea of separation of, of a nation or a people from God or the state from God. God's still to be recognized. Now, what about somebody that refuses to recognize God? Well, doesn't mean we beat them up. Doesn't mean we imprison them. We talk in some of the early colonies. They they did have a, uh, a a rule where if somebody was an atheist, he wasn't going to serve in public office. He wasn't beat up. But you know what? Their reasoning was pretty good on that. If you don't recognize God exists. You've got no moral absolutes, right? 
And what one of our problems today is we've got a lot of people that don't have any basis for right and wrong because they reject God. They, they don't believe they're going to be accountable to God. But I am thankful for the establishment of the First Amendment and that we don't have a state church. And I think it's all right to tolerate Islam, but I don't think we have to cater to Muslims. It's all right to, to tolerate Judaism. Uh, they, they do worship the God of the Bible as well, but, but you don't bend over backwards necessarily to, to uh, cater to people that don't believe in the God, that don't believe in Jesus. Uh, we thank God for the First Amendment, and that's one of the things that's made this country great and given us the religious liberty that we have. And every place, by the way, every place where Islam gets in control, religious liberty goes out the window. It's a dangerous thing. Even in places in this country, there's dangers there. This is something demonstrated also in the freedom Christians allow each other in a local church or in the universal church as a whole. Now, we're not talking about uh, doctrinal fundamentals here. You know, within the church, it, hopefully you all believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Hopefully you all believe in salvation by grace through faith. And if you don't, then you probably shouldn't be part of this church. And if you are part of this church and, and you, know, you don't believe in those things, then, then probably you ought not to stay a part of this church. Or you ought to change your beliefs. But, but we're not going to try to get you thrown in prison. We're not going to beat you up. That's what we're talking about when they merit of soul liberty. We're not talking about moral rebellion against the Word of God. There's much that teaches us things that are right, things that are wrong. And, it, you know, it's not right for, for, not okay for me to say, well, adultery is fine. There's no real problem with it as long as it's consenting adults. And you say, well, no, that's not right. That's not an error for individual soul liberty. Because the Word of God is pretty clear that adultery is definitely wrong. It's destructive to families. It's destructive to the state. And you know what? There's not, nothing wrong with the country even having laws against adultery. How about laws against murder? It's all right to have laws against murder, right? So there are moral principles that can be upheld. We're talking about many times within a local church, differences in application, differences in application of Scripture. And we're talking about some gray areas. You realize there are some gray areas, you know, as far as, you know, we don't agree on every single thing. There are some gray areas that come into play, the type of music that you like, for one thing, the, uh, whether you eat meat sacrifice, uh, that's not really an issue here anymore, is it? Uh, we don't have that. How about the way that you, what you do on, on Sunday? Now, some of you don't, uh, I grew up in a home where we sat on the porch or we sat around the sat in the living room, that was about it. No way in the world would you go out and play ball or anything like that on Sunday. That was my parents' belief. You know what? I respect them for that. That's not my belief. I'm going to go to the picnic this afternoon. <laughs> if you don't think it's all right to play ball or have a good time, okay, sit there under the shade tree and enjoy the fellowship. But recognize that other people think it's all right. And they got, they're trying to please the Lord to do such things. So we're talking about fact that there are some gray areas and there, there are things that we, we can do to bring people to Christ. We can pray. We can warn them of hell. You know, If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ as your Savior. I'm going to pray for you. 
I, I, I warn you, there is a real hell. The, the lake of fire is a, a reality, and if you're without Christ, you're headed there. I'm going to do everything I can to try to convince you from the Bible that you need Christ as your Savior. I'm going to try to persuade you, even with passion, and I'll also enlist the help of other people. Hey, you've got to talk to so-and-so. They need Christ. And pray for them. Talk to them. Share with them. But you know what? I recognize your liberty. Say, I'm not interested. I'm not going to beat you over the head with a two-by-four. If the Bible said I could and that would work, then all right, we would do it. And we got some two-by-fours around here. But that's a violation of what we have taught in Scripture as far as the matter of individual soul liberty. So the things I'm not going to do, I'm not going to try to have you punished or persecuted in any way. I'm not going to try to force you or coerce you into professing Christ, a faith in Christ. But recognize, you're here without Christ, you recognize one day you will stand before God. You will give an account for yourself and for your refusal to accept Christ as your Savior. And God will deal with you. God will pour out His judgment upon you. And believe me, the wrath of God is worse than anything that any person or any group could pour out on anybody in this age. And it's real. question is, okay, you've got the liberty to trust Christ or not. I might also point out with that liberty, you have the responsibility to make a choice. What is your choice? It's not important before me what your choice is. Yeah, I care. I'm concerned. But most important, it's important for before God. What is your choice? And your choice of whether you're going to trust Christ as your Savior in this lifetime is going to determine your eternal destiny as you stand before a sovereign God. But you have your right. Your right to be wrong in this life. But one of these days, it'll catch up with you. Individual soul liberty within the church, you and I are both accountable to Jesus. Not in most areas to each other. In some areas, maybe we are. Husbands and wives are accountable to each other. Things like that. If we agree on the fundamentals of the faith as a local church family, we can work together. We can love each other. And we can work together because we serve the same Redeemer. We may not agree on every little thing. We may not apply the Scriptures in exactly the same way to our lives or our families. But that's where the matter is. You're accountable to Christ. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. One of these days, I'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In the meantime, what do we do? We love each other. We agree to disagree on some of these things. Doesn't that make for a beautiful church? You know, when you're always fighting over some of the non-essentials, that's a horrible thing, and what a black mark that leaves in a, in a community where the church is trying to reach out with the gospel of Christ. Individual, soul liberty. It's biblical. One of these days we'll stand before Christ and we'll give an account to Him. In the meantime, it's not you and me giving an account to each other, but we are accountable to God for the way you love each other and work together to get out the gospel of our Redeemer. Heavenly Father, thank You for the opportunities You give to us to love You and to choose to trust Christ as our Savior. 
we realize you are sovereign, Lord. You are Lord over all, but you, you give us the privilege, the responsibility to choose to believe the Bible, to choose to believe the gospel, to choose to love you, to choose to take Jesus as our Savior. And Lord, with that privilege, we realize we are also responsible. Father, I pray if there's any here with us today that do not know Jesus Christ as Redeemer and Savior, that they might even talk to you right here, right now, admit to you that they're a sinner who needs a Savior, and tell you they want to take Jesus to be their Savior, and they want to live for Him. God, would you work in hearts and lives of anybody who might be here today that doesn't know for sure that Christ is their Savior. Lord, give us the wisdom to know how to relate to people with, with whom we disagree in this world or even in this church, in areas that just, some of them that just aren't that, that important. Lord, help us to give individual soul liberty to each other, recognizing that one day the most important thing is going to take place when we give our account before you at the judgment seat of Christ. And what we do in eternity will be determined by our loyalty and our faithfulness to Christ in this lifetime. God, thank you for our Redeemer and our Savior. We're privileged to know you and serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.